Hello, my name is Nick Bright, scholar of East Asian religions. And I'm Proven Paradox, a guy with a lot of questions. And you're listening to Bright on Buddhism, a podcast where we discuss East Asian Buddhism, answering listener-submitted questions from listeners just like you, and introducing concepts of Buddhism that you may or may not be familiar with in a casual, conversational setting. Enjoy. Hermit, why is the abbot of that monastery being in prison? I do not know the details, but I have heard rumors that he was corrupt and guilty of more than one impropriety. The monastery privately held a great deal of land and engaged in a number of money-changing businesses in the town. All things that the monks of the monastery ostensibly swear never to do according to the Buddha's rules for the monks and nuns. But why are they destroying the statues in the temple? They didn't steal anything. Or destroying the texts. They didn't teach him to engage in such corruption. Maybe it is to set an example for others? If you are a Buddhist or affiliated with a Buddhist who behaves in this way, expect to be punished for it. I wonder if now the eye of suspicion will be on all Buddhists. It very likely will be. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Bright on Buddhism. This week we will be discussing the four major persecutions of Buddhism in Chinese history. What were they? Why did they happen? What were their historical effects? We hope you enjoy. What were the four major persecutions of Buddhism in Chinese history? So this question moves away from the doctrinal discussions that we're used to having on this show, and it moves us into a much more historical discussion. I think that it's useful to step into the historical perspective from time to time and kind of look at how the doctrine affects history and how it changes people and how people change it. We've talked a great deal about doctrine as it's developed and changed over the course of time and space as Buddhism has traveled from India to China to Korea to Japan. And, of course, we still have an endless amount left to talk about with doctrine, but we also might take some time and discuss the important historical moments in the history of Buddhism. All religions have doctrines, rules for how to live and why we ought to live that way, but they also have histories. They are historical entities and can and should be studied as such. So for now, we're going to step outside of Buddhist doctrine and into Chinese history for a moment. Before we get started, I want to remind everybody of the larger historical framework going on here, and then we will get into the persecutions themselves. If you remember, Siddhartha Gotama is thought to have lived from the 500s or 600s BCE until the 400s BCE in India. Sometimes they say Nepal. India and Nepal are modern states, and they didn't look that way 2,500 years ago. And so these are modern-day approximations. His sermons then spread to China by means of the Silk Road in the 1st or 2nd century Common Era. Sutras came over and were translated by Central Asian figures who were literate in both Chinese and Sanskrit. And then in the 4th century, Buddhism spread to the Korean Peninsula. Shortly after that, in the 6th and 7th centuries, it traveled to Japan. The persecutions that we will be looking at take place in the mid-400s AD, the late 500s AD, the mid-800s AD, and the mid-900s AD. So this is a couple of centuries after Buddhism had made it to China, and nearly a thousand years after the death of Siddhartha Gautama. This time frame also spans four different Chinese dynasties. If you remember, Chinese imperial history is marked by these dynastic periods, and in this time period they happen to be quite short, roughly about a century each, and so these four persecutions happen over the course of four different dynasties. 
these dynasties in which this time frame spans are the period of the northern and southern dynasties from AD 386 to 589, the Sui dynasty from AD 581 to 618, the Tang dynasty from AD 618 to 906, and the Five Dynasties period, or the Ten Kingdoms period, from 907 to 960. The first major persecution of Buddhism in Chinese history occurred in 446 AD and was carried out by Emperor Taiwu of the Northern Wei Dynasty. The second one was in 567, when Emperor Wu of the Northern Zhou Dynasty abolished Buddhism and destroyed Buddhist and Taoist images and temple sites. The third persecution is known as the Great Persecution, or the Hui Chang Persecution of Buddhism, and it took place in 845, when Emperor Wu Tsong of the Tang Dynasty attempted to strip the wealth of the Buddhist monasteries for war funds. The fourth persecution was in 955, when Emperor Shizong of the later Zhou Dynasty destroyed Buddhist statues ostensibly to get copper from them, fermenting coins. So why did each of these persecutions occur? The first persecution by Emperor Tai Wu of the Northern Wei was carried out for several political and military reasons. I'll set the scene. The Northern Wei Dynasty, which was located in what is now the northeast of China, including some of Mongolia and modern-day Russia, was rather constantly at war with its northern and southern neighbors. The entire time period was marked by war and upheaval and changing political alliances and cultural modes, and so this was a very chaotic time for the state of Northern Wei. The entire time was also marked by periods of decentralization of imperial power and then recentralization and then decentralization. And at the same time as all of this political upheaval was going on and cultural upheaval was going on, there was also an early process starting of sinicization taking place. Sinicization is the process of becoming more unified in what we now understand to be Chinese culture. This is something that happened in history over the course of many thousands of years, and it involves adoption of specific types of currency, specific religious traditions, specific dynastic rules, and so on. This was a very chaotic time, and there was a lot going on. Northern Wei was but one of many independent and warring kingdoms in China at this time. So while Tai Wu of the Northern Wei was fighting rebels in his northern territories, rebels known as the Xiongnu, he discovered that there were rebel weapons being stored in Buddhist temples. This could be because the rebels had put them there, or because the monasteries were involved with the rebels. It's unknown which is the case. But ultimately, at the end of the day, Tai Wu blamed the Buddhists. He thought that they had changed sides and that they were joining the rebels in revolting against his rule. Tai Wu was also a devout Taoist, and part of his sinicization policies involved removing Buddhism which he thought to be of foreign influence because it came from India, and he wanted to replace it with Taoism, which he thought to be the indigenous Chinese religion, and which he thought should have cultural and religious hegemony over Chinese society at the time. Thus, he outlawed Buddhism, destroying some temples and some artifacts. This was a uniquely political and selfish decision on his part because of the weapons he found there, but also because of his affiliation with the Taoists, which had a disdain for Buddhism from the outset. I would like to interrupt you real quick. So, Sinicization, is that specifically Chinese? I've never heard this word before. Is that specifically Chinese culture? It is, yeah. Okay, so that's specifically Chinese and not a word I would use, I would expect to see used with other contexts? Yeah, this is another one of the roots for the word China. For example, ah. someone who studies China is a Sinologist. 
or these states that happen to be in that part of Asia are Sinitic peoples or Sinitic states. It's a rather old Western term that's been applied to the study of China. Okay, cool. Just wanted to make sure. Absolutely. Continue, please. The second persecution was carried out by Emperor Wu of the Northern Zhou. The period of chaos and war that we just discussed resulted in there being four roughly unified states in this time period that continued to jockey with each other for power and for unification of what is now modern-day China. Emperor Wu of the Northern Zhou was emperor of one of these states in what we now call the middle third of modern-day China, if you were to split China vertically. So that means that it was landlocked with present-day Vietnam, Laos, and Bangladesh to the south, and the other three states of this kind of warring kingdom period to the east. These were, from north to south, the northern Qi, the western Liang, and the Chen dynasties. During this time period, Buddhist monasteries had begun to become very powerful social institutions in competition with Confucianism and Taoism. They began to hold wealth as landowners and farmers. They began to become close with wealthy elites through conversion of those elites or through tutoring and educating their children or through wealthy patronage of Buddhist art and architecture. And they also became ideologically powerful as an alternative to Confucianism in the imperial court. This is often thought of as being a matter of corruption. We've talked about in the past how Buddhists are prohibited from doing a lot of these things that they did, owning land, farming that land, handling money, and so on. And these are all prohibited in the precepts. But what happened, the reason why this corruption all happened is because there was a relaxation of the precepts among these newer Mahayana schools. And also, there were some uniquely corrupt bad actors, and because the relationship that Buddhism had developed with the elite led to a little bit of nepotism and a little bit of back-and-forth favors between the Buddhist institutions and the elite. So this all leads to a former monk named Wei Yuansong, imploring Emperor Wu to abolish Buddhism in the Northern Zhou. Not much is known about his reasoning, not much is known about why he left the monastery to pursue a life in the laity, but essentially we can kind of reverse engineer that he was very dissatisfied with how corrupt and how elite and how noble the Buddhist monasteries had become. Emperor Wu, also a Taoist, was in favor of this idea, and so he forced all of the monks and nuns in the country into lay life. So they were no longer able to be monks and nuns. They had to go back to regular life. And the land of all these Buddhist temples was confiscated and given to soldiers. So there's the political and military reason here of increasing the amount of land that can support military activities against the other three states that we mentioned before. And then all of the wealth that these monasteries held was put back in the hands of the emperor. So you can think of this as one of those periods of centralization of political power, where he's trying to gather up all of the assets in the kingdom for himself and for his own activities. The third persecution is regarded as the great persecution of Buddhism in Chinese history. Like I said, it's also called the Hui Chang persecution, or the great anti-Buddhist persecution. When people say the Chinese persecution of Buddhism, nine times out of ten, they mean this one. This one occurred in the Tang dynasty. This dynasty is one of the highlights of Chinese history. There was a massive and unprecedented amount of cultural exchange, technological and cultural development, and political strength and unity in most of what is now modern-day China. 
During this time, in fact, Japanese Buddhist thinkers were being sent to China by Japanese emperors to see what was developing in Chinese Buddhist doctrine so that they could bring it back to Japan and get it started there. The Tang Dynasty held the most land that a Chinese dynasty had ever held up to that point, and so not only enjoyed tax revenues from about 75% of what is now present-day China geographically, but they also enjoyed the influence and power among the other states around them, which led to tributary states. So the surrounding states, so that they could placate the beast and not incur their wrath and incur invasions, incur military action, they would send tributaries. They would send tributes to the Tong court. And this helped contribute to a lot of this cultural exchange that I mentioned. So these tributary states included what is now Korea, Japan, Tibet, Vietnam, and even India, and some other states as well that no longer exist. So there was a lot going on and a lot developing culturally and religiously and technologically in the Tang dynasty. However, at the same time as all this was happening, the wealth of the Buddhist temple organizations was increasing again. So you could say that there are periods of centralization, decentralization among the imperial courts, but there's also periods of great wealth and great poverty among the Buddhist institutions in China uh, over the course of this part of its history. So this persecution occurred in the Tang Dynasty for several reasons that were very similar to the first persecution because of the wealth and material benefit of the Buddhist monasteries. The Buddhist monasteries and temples had come to hold a lot of land and resources. They also had come to have a lot of people in court who were Buddhist and who voted in favor of the Buddhist institutions. And all of this financial sway and political sway made the other parties uncomfortable, namely the Confucians and the Taoists and others. The Tang Dynasty was indeed quite wealthy, and so these institutions being rich should not matter that much. But in order to get as much land as they had and to keep it, a lot of money had to be spent on tax collection, on quelling rebellions, and on fighting new conquests to continue to increase that empire geographically and continue to feed everybody. And to also deal with the fact that some tributary states were hesitant or reluctant to actually send tributes. So, one of Emperor Wutsong's conquests to the north against the Uyghur tribes bankrupted the country. And so, wealthy Buddhist monasteries were disbanded, and the wealth that they had incurred was used to cover those costs. That was one of the political and military reasons for this persecution, but there were also social reasons. As I said, the Confucians and the Taoists were very unhappy with Buddhism's influence and power in the economy and in the government, and they saw Buddhism as being contradictory to traditional Chinese values that were laid out through Confucianism and through Taoism, such as the family model. Of course, Buddhism has people that leave the family and go and live in a monastery. And that is seen as violating the value of family in Chinese culture. And so the Confucians in particular are very suspicious of the Buddhists for this reason. And of course, the Buddhist institutions were also very corrupt at this time, and they were engaging in money lending, pawnbroking, slave trade, and so on. Finally, there were some nativist arguments going on relating to the fact that Buddhism was from India and not native to China. Other foreign religions like Christianity, Judaism, and Manichaeism were also persecuted, including, I should mention, Zoroastrianism. So this is all another process of the sanitization I was talking about. They're trying to purify what they have decided is Chinese culture and get rid of these things that are not Chinese, such as these other religions 
such as Christianity, Judaism, Manichaeism, Zoroastrianism, and so on. The final persecution occurred in 955 when Emperor Shitsong of the later Zhou dynasty destroyed Buddhist images and forced monks and nuns into lay life simply so that he could acquire the copper that came from those Buddhist statues. The Tang dynasty had imploded due to internal rebellions and some other history that is much too complicated and much too long of a story to get into here. But in the end, one of the resulting shards of the former empire, the later Zhou, required copper for money. That's how they printed their coin. And so they destroyed nearly half of all the temples in the state for the copper that those statues held and for the other wealth that the Buddhist institutions had at that time. This was not for corruption reasons. This was not for Taoist reasons, so to speak, or Confucian reasons. He actually had a bankrupt state. And so he successfully destroyed nearly half of all the temples and all of the images of the Buddha just so that he could get the metal from them. So what were the effects of these persecutions historically? As is the case with all sort of persecutions like this, where for social and political and ideological reasons, someone goes on a conquest or a crusade against some other party and thus destroys all of their stuff, the effects are immeasurable. And they're immeasurable if for no other reason than we have no idea what we lost or how much. Obviously, Buddhism survived and even enjoyed continued patronage and continued to flourish throughout Chinese history in spite of these persecutions, but we can never know of the texts, the statues, and the relics that were destroyed. Of course, the Tang Dynasty is something of a golden age for Chinese Buddhism in a lot of ways, and of course, that's when the Great Persecution happens, but at the same time, you can still never recover those things, and you can never know what was lost or how valuable it was or how interesting it was or what it might tell us about Buddhism earlier in history. For example, this whole persecution is particularly sad because the reasons for the persecutions themselves were often factionalist and petty and whatnot, but also because the oldest surviving original Buddhist texts that we have are from China in some cases. This is because Chinese paper is exponentially more durable and sturdy, and the Chinese environment is much more amenable to storing paper than India's. And thus, they survive times passing, while a lot of the texts from India did not. So, unfortunately, if there was a text that was only survived by its Chinese translations, and not by any Indian translations, and it was destroyed during any of these persecutions, then it's gone. It's gone forever. So this is very unfortunate for scholars of Buddhism, but also for scholars of other things as well. For example, I'm currently working on a research project concerning Japanese Buddhist art and architecture history. So not necessarily doctrine, but some of the imagery, some of the visual cultures that occur in Japan in the pre-modern period. And the entire discipline that I'm working in exists as a result of Chinese Buddhist art and architecture history. And because of these persecutions, so many temples and pieces of art and other visual cultures were also destroyed. So not even mentioning the texts, some of these images and relics are gone. And so that means that these persecutions had massive effects downstream, not even just relating to the text themselves, but also to architecture and visual culture and relics and art and so on. So this is not as severe of a loss of human knowledge as maybe the burning of Alexandria was, the Library of Alexandria, but it's certainly close in the sense that we have no idea what we lost and the historical effects downstream were huge. 
We hope you enjoyed today's episode on the major persecutions of Buddhism in Chinese history. Join us next week, where we will discuss Sariputra. Who is Sariputra? What role does he play in the texts? How does his role change over time? We hope to see you there, and thank you very much for listening. We hope to see you there. Thanks for listening. My name is Nick Bright, scholar of East Asian religions and the voice of Hebrew. And I'm Docs, editor, question asker, and voice of Hermit. And this has been Bright on Buddhism. Thank you for listening. If you like our podcast, or if you have a question you'd like us to discuss, we'd love to hear from you. Please consider leaving a comment or review, subscribing, or joining us on social media. Email us at bright.on.buddhism at gmail.com, or tweet us at brightbuddhism. As always, citations and resources for this episode can be found in the show notes. Thank you.